Well, good morning. Uh, we have just a few more weeks left in the book of First Peter, uh, and then the plan is to work our way through Second Peter, and then Jude, and then we're still sorting out where exactly we're going to go next. Uh, it might be something Old Testamenty. It might not be. We're still just not quite sure. Um, but that has been been a pattern for us for a while to do some New Testament and then go back to Old Testament. Um, we kind of like to go back and forth. Uh, we kind of like to preach the whole Word of God. Uh, as it turns out, um, to show the interconnectedness of the message from Old Testament to New, to show the unchanging sovereignty of God, to highlight the promise of a Messiah and the fulfillment of that promise um, as it started in the very beginning. Um, So I don't know where we're going to go, but that'll be part of our focus. So if you've tracked along with us thus far, you know that we've hit on several key themes now in 1 Peter. Themes that are pretty clear and pretty obvious and themes that we don't exactly love to hear. The idea of suffering. Uh, suffering for our faith should be expected for followers of Christ. In fact, uh, uh, I just did a little search this week. Uh, the word suffer, or some variation of it, um, I think shows up 12 times in just the five chapters of this little book. So we can't escape it. <clears throat> Hard to miss suffering as a central theme. Fortunately, however, a related theme is that those who suffer as Christians, those who suffer for the faith, will be blessed, will be exalted. Uh, We see it show up in the first chapter, uh, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Pretty good blessings right there. Uh, a few verses later, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that was brought to you. Chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So living a life of faith, we are told, may, no, we're told will, present extra challenges. Above and beyond just living in a fallen world, where we're captive to, you know, the whims of time and gravity and disease and other people's sinfulness and but we're also reminded repeatedly that we are but exiles here the world is not our home we're not going to be here forever this is kind of a a test lab of sorts and there's a reward for our faith so not only are we called to persevere and endure we're called to lean into our faith so it becomes more than a crutch as some like to call it it's actually this is a a a reasonable choice for us to lean into our trust in Christ. It leads us to a lifestyle of do-goodery, as we keep saying, where our reaction to life is a measure of our faith. Our reaction to life is a measure of our faith. And we know that people are watching to see how we react. So Peter actually kind of holds up a mirror to our lives and our lifestyles. And he reminds us, Here's how you are intended to live as Christ followers. How y'all doing? 
I mean, we got this whole section about submitting to authority. Okay, we got that. We're fine there. Servants are told to honor their masters. Husbands and wives are told how they are intended to work together, especially for those married to unbelievers, but it's generally applicable to all of us. He tells us how we're to function as a church family. All of these areas discuss how we're to conduct ourselves in relationship. Then last week, he gets down to, and here's how your own personal conduct ought to be. If, if your goal is to glorify God, it's another theme that comes up repeatedly throughout 1 Peter, then our personal lifestyle and our personal conduct will reflect that goal. In short, he says, if your lifestyle and your behaviors are no different than the unbelieving world around you, then you're probably doing it wrong. Maybe, maybe you aren't quite as committed a follower as you thought you were. It's time to regroup. Maybe it's time to reevaluate. What is it you're truly worshiping? These are hard things to hear. And still, the underlying argument for all this is when you attempt to live according to godliness rather than godlessness, you will experience suffering or persecution or trials of various kinds. We should expect it. It's part of living the life of an exile. Peter picks this argument back up at the end of chapter 4, where he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now this is fairly obvious, but I think it's worth pointing out that Peter starts this section with beloved. He's showing his compassion He's showing his care for these early readers and for everybody else who, who reads it after that. And he only uses beloved twice in this whole letter. And both times are kind of tied to what well, kind of difficult things to hear. He says it again uh, in chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Both places he's talking about the challenges or trials of living a Christian life, the, the spiritual war that's being waged. So he's being sympathetic and he's being encouraging, but he's making a pretty serious point. Beloved, he says, my, my church family, my fellow sojourners, fellow followers of Christ, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you, as though something strange were happening. This is so important for us to grasp. Because I think we've been conditioned to think and believe otherwise. That suffering is the exception rather than the rule. Or that anytime we face difficulty, anytime we face trial or persecution, that somehow God is punishing us. And I think we've come to this idea a, a number of ways. I think in, in the Western church, which has been relatively free from actual physical persecution, We've come to believe that we are the almost sole beneficiaries of God's great mercy. I mean, from a global perspective, the West has been extraordinarily blessed, which is true. We have been spared, for the most part, from physical suffering. And then somehow we stretch that to mean that God probably loves us more than everybody else. He'll never allow anything bad to happen to us because we're special. So if something happens to us, God must be mad at us. I mean, from another perspective, we might suggest that we're suffering in the West as a culture 
but not physically so much as spiritually. I think it's interesting if you think about this. In, in Romans, Paul made it clear that after sinners reject the gospel and they reject God for so long, he gives them over to their passions. Whatever this is, sexual immorality, drunkenness, drugs, whatever else, if this is what you think you want, if this is what you think will make you happy, if this is what you choose to worship instead of me, have at it. Ultimately, we find out this is a form of judgment. I mean, these end up being life-altering, life-ruining pursuits. And we're seeing the consequences of this in our everyday life. But I think we also have come to this kind of super-blessed perspective. We see it in our end times theology. God loves us so much that he's going to snatch us up in the rapture before things get really bad. I mean, we, we obviously talked about this a lot over the last year, so this is an idea that's never really, I mean, it's never mentioned by name. It's even hard to find the concept in Scripture, but we kind of read into it because we come at it from this we're super blessed concept. And then I think we have this plethora of false teachers who tell us that God wants us to, to, to never suffer and to be happy and healthy and wealthy. And it turns out the best way for us to be happy and healthy and wealthy is to make the false teachers happy and wealthier. But we bought into this concept of the prosperity gospel ever so slightly, where we start to believe that trials and temptations and, and all these things that we are supposed to suffer as a result of our faith, it means that we don't have enough faith. That's why we have them. Now, that might well be true, but those two aren't necessarily tied together. Suffering for the cause of Christ or for the name or for the faith, it's said several ways in here. This is not the ex exception. It's what should be expected. Suffering should be expected. Trying to live righteously in an unrighteous world will bring us into conflict. Which means... As Christians, we probably ought to be more concerned about not facing trials from time to time because it means the devil's content to just leave us alone. We're ineffective enough as it is. Why does he need to mess with us? Maybe we need to regroup. And not only does Peter say we ought to expect the fiery trials, but again he says we ought to rejoice because of them. We ought to rejoice in the middle of them. We have to rejoice that we're godly enough for the devil to mess with. I mean, not all trials are from the devil, but you get my point. And really, I think that the, the Greek grammar here doesn't just say rejoice. It, it suggests we keep on rejoicing. You know, we don't face a trial and say, well, I'm glad I got this. And then we get back to worry. It says we rejoice when it starts. We rejoice in the middle and we keep rejoicing right on through. And why should we keep on rejoicing? It's because we get to share in Christ's sufferings. Another common theme throughout the New Testament. So it turns out we can't just take the good stuff of being a Christian without sharing in a little of the hard stuff. It'd be kind of like, you know, standing up in the front on your wedding day and hearing the pastor or whomever gets their internet license these days, apparently. But hearing them say, uh, do you take Priscilla... For better or worse, uh, and for richer or poorer, and we think, hmm, 
I'm just going to go with the better and richer parts. I'm not, I'm not agreeing to the rest. It's not how it works. Christ suffered and died for us so that we might live abundantly, and part of that living means suffering as he suffered. But Peter also adds, we'll also get to rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Again, the, the, the Greek is a, is a bit more expansive here. It might say something like, rejoice with great spiritual rejoicing. It's, it's rejoice squared, cubed. I think Peter likely has in mind here the, the, the second coming. So when we see Jesus return to claim his church after all the trials, after all the sufferings we've experienced in this life, we're going to rejoice with great spiritual rejoicing. Knowing what lies ahead and leaving what has happened behind. Until then, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of God, spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now this seems pretty straightforward, and it is, but I think it also suggests something deeper and, and, and grander behind it. Peter has just said we should expect suffering and we should rejoice as we're going through it, and then he gives us this kind of specific example. He says if we're insulted, some translations might use the word revile, which we talked about a week or two ago. Some might translate it as abused or slandered. But if you're insulted for the name of Christ, that's an important qualifier there. It's not just if you're insulted because you're a jerk who happens to be a Christian. I mean, you probably know some of those people. Not here, but you know. If we're insulted specifically for the name, if we're insulted because of the name, if we're insulted for our faith, if we're insulted, insulted for the cause of Christ, because maybe we don't indulge in the, the passions of the flesh that were mentioned last week, when everybody else does those things and we don't, and we're mocked for it, maybe we're mocked for, for believing that God created the heavens and the earth, and we're not ashamed to say so. Whatever the circumstance, so long as we're being insulted because of our belief in Jesus Christ, it only seems like we're being insulted. Reality is, we're being blessed. Hmm. Who knew? Peter really flips that on its head, doesn't he? I mean, we're in the middle of this altercation, and we think, sheesh, based on the language this guy is using against me right now, uh, based on that, that vein that's bulging in his neck, because I'm a Christian and I'm standing up for the truth about gender or about the value of life or whatever it might be, it sure seems like I'm being mocked and abused and insulted. It does not feel like a blessing. But in that moment, or, you know, moments if it's a long-winded insulter, in that moment where we're feeling most attacked and, and most put upon and most vulnerable even, it says the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. That sounds awesome. What does it mean? I think here's the big idea. As Christians, we know that we, we, we have already received the gift or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We see it in places like John 14. And I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In 1 Corinthians, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, 
whom you have from God, you are not your own. So we've already got this going for us, you know, which is nice. But in these moments of fiery trial and abuse, it seems as though we get this extra fullness, this extra dose of the Holy Spirit. It's like Holy Spirit turned up to 11 to bless us, to strengthen us, to give us this peace that passes understanding, even to give us a response if a response is needed. And in that moment, or, or in these moments of attack, we get this kind of foretaste of heavenly glory. Some manuscripts say that the, the spirit of glory and power of God comes upon you. Most believe the power was added later, but it kind of fits the idea here. We, we receive this external and, and internal strengthening that allows us to persevere in this moment. It allows us to endure and ultimately to overcome this trial. And I think it's likely that P Peter had in mind here this text from Isaiah 11. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So this text is clearly talking about the coming Messiah, right? It's about Jesus. And not only is he going to receive the spirit of the Lord resting on him, but he's going to receive wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge. So there's this link made again here, I think, that we get to share in the glory of Christ, but we also share in the sufferings of Christ. In the moment of suffering, we get to share in the glory. So by sharing in the sufferings of Christ, we also get to share in the blessings of Christ. Part of which includes this kind of extra special dose of the Holy Spirit, so that when we're attacked, when we're abused, it's not in vain, we're not alone. This is, in fact, a blessing. So when we pray, Lord, I want more. I want, I want to feel closer to you. I want to know your blessing and your power. I want to know that, that you're right here, right now. Maybe what we're really praying is, Lord, send me an insulter. Well, I don't think that's the way it really works, but isn't it helpful to know that when we are being snubbed or ostracized or, or mocked or abused, reviled, slandered, because we take a stand for faith, this is a blessing for us. We get to know God in a bigger way. We get to know the presence and the power of the Lord. That helps a little bit. But, lest we get confused because we're you know prone to do that, Peter provides this point of contrast for us, or, or points of contrast about this suffering for the name and what that means. He goes on to say, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So it's okay, it it's should be expected to suffer for the name of Christ. In that way lies blessing. But that's decidedly different than suffering because we've committed some grievous, heinous, crime. If we commit murder as a Christian, Christian, and perhaps we say it was for some righteous cause, we're punished for it, I don't think we can count that suffering as suffering for the name of Christ. That's suffering because we're idiots. We're criminals. We're, we're, we're life-taking lawbreakers who are subjects for the law of the land. 
Or if we steal something and, and subsequently get caught, and at trial we stand and say, well, the Lord appeared to me in a dream, and he told me that I was to be blessed with an 85-inch 4K TV just before Super Bowl. So I helped myself. And we're tried and we're sentenced to a hard time. It's because we're idiots. It's not because we're suffering for the name of Christ. No blessing from God will attach to suffering, that kind of suffering. Or it says even any evil doing in general. Do evil things and end up suffering in some form or fashion. You cannot reasonably expect to be blessed by God, nor will you receive a blessing by God just because you say you're a Christian. But then it gets interesting. Peter's made this pretty forceful contrast between doing good and suffering as a Christian versus doing bad and suffering as a Christian. One is blessed, the other is not, but the list is kind of unusual. I mean, at first read, when we go through this, you, you might think, boy, one of these things is not like the others. Can you spot it? Murderer, thief, evildoer, meddler. And that is exactly what you think it is. Actual synonyms provided are busybody, prior, as in someone who pries into your business, and my favorite on the list, Budinsky. Now there's very little in the way of explanation as to why Peter uses this particular list. Why does he include meddling in the list of otherwise fairly serious offenses? I mean, murder and theft were capital offenses even then, as Peter wrote this. Evil doing could be any number of things, and, and all would be punishable to some degree, depending on the seriousness. But again, meddling. I mean, that might be, you know, annoying to the parties being meddled. It could hurt someone's feelings. Maybe it leads to rumors or gossip, but does it rise to the same level of seriousness as the others? Well, the argument's been made that Peter really is just trying to uh, point out an obvious contrast, that suffering for the faith is far different from suffering because we do stupid things, right? We can't go around being mindless, moronic Christians who do stupid things and say stupid things and, and being poor representatives of the gospel and expect God to bless us anyway. We're called to live different, differently. Which one's right? Differently. And the truth is, for the most part, as a, Christ, as a real Christ follower, we would never consider murder or theft or doing evil acts. I mean, not for more than a second. Ah, but we might be more prone to meddling. Perhaps you've experienced this. Someone you know, a fellow believer. They come to you and they say, you know, we really need to pray for sister so-and-so because they're just experiencing thus and such. It all started last year when, and they go through this whole thing, and then they end up with, they really need our prayer. Now, they might actually genuinely be concerned about sister so-and-so, but you kind of get the sense they really just want to gossip and meddle and get involved where they shouldn't be. Maybe they're not even aware that that's their primary motivation. I don't know. I kind of think that's why Peter put this on the list. It's not because it's as egregious as murder and theft. 
but it's to, to represent or make us aware of the kinds of behaviors that we can and do engage in on a regular basis. Things that are harmful to other people. And, I, and I've had this happen when someone tells me about sister thus and so, or so and so. They did thus and such. It was sister so and so. And then I try to kindly, tactfully call them out for sharing something they shouldn't be, be sharing. I, I call out their meddling. Well, then they get offended and they become the victim. They act as they're the one who's suffering. I think part of Peter's goal here is to remind us that not only does the behavior itself matter, but our motives matter as well. Praying for those in need, absolutely. We can and should do that. But using that as an excuse to, as my grandma used to say, tell tales out of school, well, we better check our motives. And if they're not right, it's not going to result in a blessing. No matter how much we may think we're helping them or praying for them, our focus should not just be on the big sins, but on these daily offenses that we're prone to commit as well. Peter continues. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So Peter's offered this, this pro-argument, if you suffer for the name, you will be blessed. And then he offers the con-argument, don't be an idiot, do stupid things if you're a Christian, and expect blessing, that's not going to work. That's the con-argument. And then he reinforces it here with the pro-argument again. It's the old sandwich method, right? Positive on the beginning and end, and then the criticism in the middle. So he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian... And he has said this very various ways throughout the text. For being a Christian, for the name, in the name of. But if you suffer name-calling or, or, or actual physical persecution, whatever it may be, anyone who suffers for being a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him not be ashamed. This could be a sermon unto itself these days you look back over the last decade, I mean probably 30, 40 years, and you really look, consider how many churches and denominations and pastors and so-called believers and faith leaders and parachurch organizations and mission agencies, how many of them have altered their doctrinal positions, once based on scripture, but they've altered them to meet the whims and dictates of popular culture. I mean, that the length of that list is staggering. It turns out, if you call the church homophobic long enough, many will be ashamed enough to change their once biblical position. If you call the church misogynistic enough, many will cave in and move away from what is clear biblical teaching. If you tell the church often enough and loud enough that they're just haters, many will just 
quietly eliminate God's moral standards altogether so nobody ever feels bad about anything. Now, I'd like to say that they've been made to feel ashamed, but the truth is they've willingly accepted that shame. They have made the decision that the feelings of those who disagree with Scripture the feelings of those people are more important than the will and the words of the almighty God of the universe. So they have made their choice. They have accepted shame. And Peter could not be more clear here. If you suffer or are persecuted or are called names or are picketed or are made to feel like haters as a Christian for standing up for and holding fast to scripture, don't be ashamed of that even if that's what the world wants. That's their goal, to make us feel shame and therefore to change to suit them. Don't feel shame. Rather, he says, glorify God in that name. Stand your ground and glorify God. Remember, he just told us, in those moments, the Spirit of God rests upon us in those trials. So at the end of the day, when we stand before Christ, when it's judgment day, we may feel beat up and bruised emotionally. We may even be beat up and bruised physically. But at the end of this life, as we stand before the throne, that's a different story altogether. We're going to be blessed for having stood for the faith. I mean, we experience blessings in this life every day. God gave us an amazing world. But what we will experience there is a million times more when we stand for truth. It won't matter how we were treated here once we get there. And then to provide, I think, a little extra incentive for us, uh, Peter gives kind of both positive and negative uh, incentives. He says, judgment begins with the household of God. Uh, or, or, or it could say from the house of God or within the house of God. So I think in context here, Peter is kind of exploring the different outcomes for those who respond positively to the gospel versus those who respond negatively to the gospel. But it's important to note that this judgment starts in the house of God. We're going to have to answer first. We're held to a different standard. So those who are Christian, perhaps in name only, cultural Christians, and they're quickly falling away. We're seeing every year there are fewer and fewer people who claim to be Christians. Right? But those Christians who, who perhaps are in name only, when they're faced with fiery trials and, and abuse or mockery uh, or, or made to feel ashamed, they will accept shame. They will not persevere. They will not endure. They will not overcome. They will ultimately side with the world. And I think Peter probably has in mind here, thinking back to several Old Testament passages here, where God's judgment fell first on Israel before it hit all the pagan cultures around them. There's sin in your camp. You've got to clean that up first. I mean, Jesus, we know, talked about separating the sheep from the goats. It's the same idea here. Suffering, our trials and tribulations, will kind of cause a shaking out. Even among the so-called faithful, we'll see who stands. And if the truly faithful are going to be judged and tested and tried, and in some cases, even at the point of death, What's going to happen to those who don't obey the gospel of God? 
And Peter throws in a, a quote here. This is a quote from Proverbs. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, scarcely here doesn't mean barely. Boy, you're just barely saved. You made it into heaven by the skin of your teeth. You were like the last one in. Man, I'm to the, to the, the, the low end of the bell curve, but I got in. Is that what that means? These concepts have no meaning when it comes to salvation. We are saved by grace alone. It's pass fail. Not by our report cards. Not, not if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. That's really kind of the Islamic concept of salvation. What this does mean, and remember the context here is suffering. What Peter's saying is, is we're saved, we're equipped, we're strengthened in the midst of suffering. By the Spirit of God resting on us. By the grace that God provides us. We're empowered to stand firm in the faith even on our darkest nights and in our weakest moments. Living by faith is not always easy, contrary to most TV preachers. But it is made easier when we suffer for the name. Because now we have help to endure. Even if it feels like we barely endure. If our faith is not genuine, if we want the blessing but not the pain, we're going to be found out. Our, our, our pseudo-faith is going to collapse under pressure. We'll give up. We'll throw up our spiritual hands and walk away. And we're told repeatedly here that, that suffering, that judgment, is a trial. It's a test of faith. We are being refined. We'll either come out purified or burned up. You know, it's been interesting over the last couple of years, just even in this small body of believers, we've experienced all manner of trial and testing and suffering. But I have to say, I've yet to hear anyone here renounce their faith because of the pain and suffering and trial. Not maybe that we haven't thought about giving up for a moment or two, But what I have seen is some of those people become even more generous. I have heard about some become even, even more outspoken about their faith. And I've seen and heard some who have experienced deep sorrow and pain still praise their Redeemer. Even if it's meekly, they're still praising and they're all looking forward to glory. This is part of what Peter's referring to here. Some will turn from Christ in time of judgment while others lean into Christ to get through it. And if we know how challenging this life can be for those of us who love the Lord and whom the Lord loves in return, if it's challenging for us, how much more challenging will it be for those who reject his love? How much more are they going to feel his judgment? But here's the rub for us as Christians, as exiles. Judgment from God doesn't always look like what we want it to be. Or what we think it should be for everybody else. I, re I referred back to Romans a little earlier. Chapter 1, starting in verse 18, Paul talks about how the wrath of God is, is being revealed 
from heaven. It's, 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 it's present tense. It's being revealed. And when people reject what can be known about God, what he's made plain to everyone, when they reject God, Paul kind of lists this, the, he, he describes the wrath of judgment that's brought on them. Their foolish hearts are darkened. They become futile in their thinking. He gives them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies. He gives them up to dishonorable passions. He gives them up to a debased mind. And then he says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, meddlers maybe, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Paul is describing the wrath or the judgment that is brought to bear on those who reject the gospel. When they repeatedly refuse to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, he just he lets them have what they think they want instead. And in the very next verse following this section, Paul starts this long dis- dis- discussion about judgment. This He's describing this judgment that will come. Now, from our Christian perspective, sometimes we look at the culture as it is, and we think, why do all these bad people get away with all this stuff? Why do Christians suffer? Why are we working hard just to make ends meet while the the liars and the cheaters and the swindlers prosper? We want judgment to be swift and immediate and preferably aimed at those who oppose us, at least initially. Again, I think this is kind of part of our mindset. If, if, we, th- if we think about our, our perceptions, because we tend to assume that financial well-being results from God's blessing, then we must assume that all rich people are blessed by God, even if they're moral degenerates. Why are they getting God's blessing in their finance? And so we become a bit jealous. We become envious, even. I mean, why am I so righteous and they're so rich? But we don't know what their lives are like. You know, if God is giving them up to their passions, if that's a judgment against them, then maybe their big fat bank account is a cover-up for these lives of misery that we just don't know anything about. Maybe their big fat bank account is not really something we should covet. What we may think is a blessing, it's really a judgment. It's a curse. Peter's words here should cause us to think deeply because judgment's going to start within the church. Rather than looking out everywhere else, rather than looking on and coveting what the unbelievers have until they die and have nothing left but torment and peril, maybe we should let those who suffer according to God's will trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let God be the judge. Let us focus on what we're supposed to do. Our focus shouldn't be what the world has and why we can't have it. Our focus should be on God's will for us and how we are working towards that so we have some spiritual success. Not on culture's idea of success for material success possessions and that's kind of a 
That's the prevailing concept in our culture, materialism. The more you have, the better a person you are. I really think that that's why one of the antidotes for materialism is tithing. It's counter-cultural. The culture tells us we need to acquire more. You can not, never really have enough. God says, eh, give some of it away. I got plenty where that came from. Do you trust me? The culture says you got to look out for number one. God says, do good for other people. I'll take care of you. This whole, this whole section of do-goodery that we've been looking at over the last few ta- chapters, it all tells the same story. Our, our faith is based on the historically accurate fact of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That, that is where our hope resides. That's where our inheritance awaits us. Our salvation does not require us to do good deeds, but rightly understood, salvation creates in us a desire to do good deeds. And then we're equipped and we're empowered to do those good deeds. And then we bring glory to God. We bring glory to the God who created us, to the Son who died for us. So we know that salvation brings temptations and trials and suffering, but they cannot change what God has done for us. Those temptations and trials and sufferings can only change how we respond. So how will we respond? Well, let's suffer according to God's will. Let's entrust our souls to a faithful creator and let's do good. And if at the end we find ourselves in the presence of God for all eternity, it's not going to matter how beat up and bruised we become along the way or, or how feeble, how sickly our bodies were as exiles. We're going to be home. We'll see King Jesus on his throne. We'll share in his glory and live forever and ever. Hallelujah and amen. Let's pray. Father God, this is such a uh, stirring text. It certainly can be perceived as negative with with the talk of suffering and trials, and, and yet through it all, we're told repeatedly about blessing and glory and exaltation when we live faithful lives. So I pray, Lord, that you continue to build us up individually, uh, that you build us up corporately, so that as people and as a church, we have a good reputation in this town, among our friends and, and co-workers and neighbors. Lord, that we are known for being people who are willing to help, for people who are willing to do good in whatever the situation is needed. But Lord, I pray that we also have a reputation for not backing down for truth, that we are not ashamed of the gospel, but we stand for truth regardless of the consequences that may come our way. We will need, I think, more strength and more power from on high as we go through this life, and we thank you that that's been promised to us over and over. We thank you for your 
faithfulness towards us, for your ongoing love for us. And as always, we're so grateful for your patience for us. In Jesus' name, amen.